So Luke 2, verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that is Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity, as Charlie said, to have a Bible to open, to have your word to study. I pray that as we look at your word together, we might be more like Simeon and Anna, faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Francesco di Bernardone grew up in central Italy in a wealthy family in the 1100s. He was the son of a cloth merchant, and he enjoyed all the splendors that wealth could afford. He enjoyed fancy clothes and fancy food and fancy women. Then his life began to look more like a series of unfortunate events. He became a prisoner of war, and in his humility, the Lord began to work in his heart and brought Francesco to himself. Francesco began to sell his father's cloth at a discount so he could make the proceeds go to the church. This made his father very upset, and so the father called for the bishop and the town and Francesco for a meeting in front of everyone. He said to Francesco, I don't want you doing this. I don't want you selling my cloth at a discount. Francesco said to his father, okay, if this cloth is so important to you, I will give it back to you. And he proceeded to take off every article of clothing, yes, every article, fold them neatly, handed them to his father, 
in which the bishop was very embarrassed, so he covered him with his cloak. We, of course, know Francesco as St. Francis of Assisi. So what happened to this playboy, St. Francis, that would make him give up everything he owned and live his life completely in a simple way and telling others about Jesus? That is what this passage focuses on and what we're going to look at this morning. How can we in the coming year live for Christ, see Christ, behold Christ, and tell others about him? We've had a wonderful introduction throughout this December with the gifts of Christmas, and we've looked at one verse in particular from Galatians. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We've looked at this verse in a number of ways. We've looked at redemption. Roger led us through redemption. We have been bought back. It's a market term, a mercantile term, to help us see that we are like slaves that have been brought back. And then we focused on adoption, the fact that we have been bought back from the orphanage of this world to become sons and daughters of the king. And Adam shared from personal experiences and through the scriptures what adoption means. And assurance, Pastor John took us through Romans 8 and helped us to see that our salvation is all of God. And if it is all of God, then we can rest in that. We can be assured that God will fulfill his promises. Pastors Adam and Charlie, almost as if it had been carefully choreographed and planned from the beginning, took us to the manger. And not just the manger on Christmas Eve morning and evening, but also the manger with the cross behind it helping us to see that if it weren't for Christmas, there would be no Good Friday and there would be no Easter celebration. So how can we move beyond these wonderful, amazing truths, these promises, these doctrines, to have it infect our lives and affect the other people around us? That is my prayer, and that is what I hope we will see this morning. It's not as if the Christian life is doing all these things right so that we receive his salvation. It's just the opposite. We have been gifted such an amazing salvation that why shouldn't that bubble up in thankfulness and joy so that we tell people around us? This passage starts off in verse 22 by Luke saying, and when the time had come for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be holy unto the Lord. Charlie read these verses from the Old Testament. It had all been planned. It had all been rearranged. That was the prequel. And now we are at the main event. Mary and Joseph are fulfilling everything that has been said. But we have to realize the writer here is Dr. Luke, who is a Gentile. He has studied the law. He has tried to understand this Jewish way of life that he has been engrafted into 
so that he can explain it to Theophilus and the other Gentiles who are going to be reading his gospel. It's very interesting. He is helping us to see that Jesus is born under the law. A temple diagram is helpful here because you have to realize that Mary and Joseph, in approaching the priests, would have had to walk through the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles were worshiping, through the court of the women, up to the court of Israel, where they would have met the priests to make this offering. Luke is explaining it for us, and he is explaining it for himself. He has made study of this. He understands that Mary is fulfilling the ritual purifications. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. John Calvin, in his commentary about Simeon, says that we should note that Simeon was not listed as a priest, he was not listed as wealthy, he wasn't listed as old, it's made, that assumption is made in a lot of the paintings you're going to see, but he was righteous and he was devout. Often we say, well, I can't be perfect, it's a wonderful excuse that we make for ourselves. And yet people in the scriptures, even Simeon, is listed as righteous and devout. He is kind of a linchpin in between the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints. The Old Testament saints look forward to Jesus coming. The New Testament saints, like us, look backward to Jesus' first coming and forward to his second coming. Simeon, Anna, Mary... Joseph, John the Baptist, they're all kind of this linchpin between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is still an urban legend you will hear sometimes that the Old Testament saints were saved by the law, the New Testament saints by grace. Don't believe it. There is so much grace in the Old Testament, and there are commands of Jesus in the New Testament all over the place. Don't take a wonderful scripture and simplify it to the point that you destroy it. These are wonderful people to study. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. How does this work? How did he know this? Maybe he listened to the shepherds, and it's not out of the realm of possibility that the shepherds would have been involved with people in the temple because that's why they were raising those sheep that they were watching. Those sheep would have been meant for temple sacrifices. Maybe. Maybe when the shepherds told him, he got out his book of Isaiah and studied it and saw, oh, it says in here, a little child shall lead them, and for unto us a child is born. Maybe he put two and two together. As I studied this passage and read the commentaries, the best explanation for how he knew this is, I have no idea. <laughs> and I think we need to come to the scriptures with, I have no idea sometimes. There's great mystery in the Bible. There's great mystery in the Christian life. And what's wrong with saying, I just don't know. 
But he knew he had a promise that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. And God was faithful to his promise. Another thing I've learned is that for some reason, God is closest to those who are close to him. It's something I can't explain, but I've witnessed many times. Proverbs 3.32b says, The Lord takes the upright into his confidence. There is a special blessing. As you draw close to the Lord, he draws close to you. I was very convicted this week. I was listening to one of my favorite preachers, Paul Washer. And he said, you know, on every device, there's something where you can map how much time you spent on your computer, your phone, your iPad, whatever it is. He said, what if you figured out each week how much time you spent on your device and how much time in prayer and compared them? And it was like this arrow just shining through the heart. People who are close to God, God is close to. Verse 27b. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared. This song or this poem is sometimes called the Nuke Dimititis. It has been set in Latin, in English for many, many years. The Anglicans use it as the end of their compline or evening prayer. It's very well known. It's also very well known to the young parents in this church that I love to hold babies. I just love holding a newborn, little toddler. But there's something much more happening here. It's just not a grandpa who loves to hold babies. This is something special. This is a turning point in all of history. And as we delve into this, this passage, you're going to see it. Simeon is at peace because he has seen Christ. He says, this is it. I have seen Christ. I have seen the salvation that you have prepared. Not that I worked for. Not that I've hoped for. That you have prepared. I've had the pleasure of going three times now with groups for Encounter Atlanta, which is something that Encompass runs. We take a group to Atlanta, and we go to the Hindu temple, the Buddhist study center, and the Islamic mosque, and we learn about the world's great religions. Having done it three times now as a leader, I see so much more than the first time. Every time I learn more, and one clarion call rings out through every visit, and that is these major religions are doing stuff for God to get to heaven, to get to paradise, to get to nirvana, to be born again as some different critter to reach nirvana, enlightenment. It's all about doing. Christianity, on the other hand, is about done. One act defines us. We just sang about it this morning. What did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. It's completely done. Whether you're looking forward to it from the Old Testament or backward to it for modern age, it's done. 
We trust in the finished work of Christ. Christianity isn't about New Year's resolutions. It's not beating ourselves up. It's not trying to do better. How many times as a hospice chaplain did I say to someone, are you ready for heaven? And they said, I think so. I've been a pretty good person. Pretty good isn't enough. Perfect is the standard, and there's only been one person who's achieved it, Christ. And all this Old Testament system leads into Christ. It's all connected. The salvation that was prepared for him. And then, verse 31 and 32 are shockers. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and a glory for your people Israel. This is the first mention in Luke's gospel of peoples, plural, when the angel comes, it says good news for the people. This is good news for all peoples. There's no way that we can enter into the radicalness of the statement that the Gentiles are now included with the Jews. It was gigantic, it was huge. The Jews had spent their whole time trying to remain pure and stay away from the Gentiles. That's why the court was structured in that way, the temple. Now Luke is saying it's one package. The church is now made up of Jew and Gentile. And he, of all people, should be shocked by this. Luke, as a Gentile, is saying we get to be included. And he does this throughout his whole gospel and then its sequel, the book of Acts. Everyone who was excluded before, women, Gentiles, lame, possessed, crippled, blind, deaf, all these people who are excluded from the people of God are now included. And this is the ministry that we get to be a part of in world missions. World missions is taking the gospel to the Gentiles. It's been happening since Luke said this. If you're here and you are of English descent, German descent, Irish descent, Polish descent, Chinese, whatever your descent is, you are included now in the people of God. This is radical stuff, and it's still going on. And yes, it is still radical. We are the product of missionaries who went to those countries. And now we get to be included. It is not easy. It is very messy. When I got back from Cameroon, I asked the two pastors who were with me, what did you learn about missions? One of them said, missions is messy. And there are casualties sometimes because it's a war. It's difficult. Simeon and Anna waited their whole lives to see the Christ. And there are still whole people groups out there waiting to see the Christ. David Platt, in his book, Radical, says radical obedience to Christ is not easy. Radical obedience is to risk losing all these things. But in the end, such risk finds its reward in Christ. And he is more than enough for us. Could not help but think that somewhere along the way, we've missed what was radical about our faith and replaced it with what is comfortable. I checked in with Randall and Paige, two of our missionaries who work in a sensitive area. Every time they leave their country, they're not sure they're going to be allowed back to their friends and their possessions. And I said to them, how can you live with this tension of just 
never knowing if you'll be allowed back into your home. And they said, it's easy because it's so much fun. We love living here because no one else can tell them about Jesus. And we get to tell them about Jesus. The radical life is a joyful life. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about them. They marveled at what was said about them. I sometimes think we put Mary and Joseph on this pedestal and we think they're perfect, they're super saints, they're wonderful. And yet this verse helps me to see that they really didn't understand it all. Why is this old man grabbing our baby and saying these things? Why is this old woman looking at our baby and saying these things? They didn't get it all. One thing I've learned is that when we put saints or churches or ministries on a pedestal, they have a far way to fall and are easily broken. The minute you make a plaster statue of someone, that's when the cracks start to show. And I think that's what even motivated Simeon because it said, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother. I wonder if he might have even put his hand on her shoulder or looked her deep in the eyes and said, be careful because this child is appointed for the rising and falling of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce your heart also so that the thoughts of many will be revealed. Some will side with Jesus, many will not. Most of the interactions with Mary have been positive up until this point, but now he says to her, watch out, this is going to be difficult. Tim Keller has a good Christmas book called Hidden Christmas. He says that we know, for example, that Mary stood near the cross and watched her son die. Like everyone else, she had no expectation of an early terrible death and then a resurrection. It must have seemed to her, as to all Jesus' disciples, that the cross was the bloody, incomprehensible end to their hopes and dreams. To that terrible disillusionment, Mary could add the unique agony and bottomless grief of outliving your child, watching him die. The pain of the cross and the revealing of our hearts began at this moment. This is what Luke wants unbelievers like his friend Theophilus to see. That the cross is central to our religion. It is not an extra. This pain that Mary would experience is a small portion of the price her son paid for our salvation. Nail spear shall pierce him through the cross he bore for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. And this is what the gospel does for us as believers. Every time we hear a sermon like this, every time we open our Bibles, God's word reveals our hearts. It shows us our sinfulness and it shows us God's glory. It is a chance to repent. It is a chance to to live. Jesus is revealing his truth in this way to people's hearts right here in central Pennsylvania, all around our country, 
and all around the world. I realize that working in missions, I have a privileged seat, but every week I get reports of Hindus coming to Christ, Muslims coming to Christ, animists, Jews, nominal Christians, people from all around the world are coming to Christ. It's an exciting time to live for the church. It's a wonderful time to live. You know where the fastest growing church is right now? In the country of Iran. Iranians are coming to faith left and right, and it is still illegal in Iran to own a Farsi Bible. If you are caught with a Farsi Bible, you can be imprisoned. And now what they're doing is going to Afghanistan to share God's word, and the Afghan church is rising up. God is working. God is doing this all around the world. This passage takes us next to someone named Anna. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as widow till she was 84. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Dr. Boyce in his Christmas book calls her one of the little people of Christmas, which made me smile. Not little because she was small or because she was unimportant, but she gets less verses than some of the major players in the Christmas story. Anna is a fascinating character because she is someone who is at the bottom of the rung socially. And I realize as I look out on our congregation this morning, there are many widows here and widowers, and I cannot even imagine the pain that you have gone through losing your life partner. Terrible, terrible sadness. I remember when my grandfather died and my grandmother said, I will never recover from this. And she really never did. On top of this, Anna had only been married for seven years. Imagine how that must have felt. Seven years and then she lost her husband. And because she's in the temple, I'm imagining that she had no children to take care of her. Her life was sad. I think as an American church, we have trouble with sad. We do happy and joyful pretty well, but sadness doesn't always have a place. Her life was sad. And for many people, their lives are a series of unfortunate events, and maybe you're one of them, and you feel sad. There are two churches I know of in Lancaster County, one's First Press in downtown Lancaster and Mannheim Hope Episcopal that do what's called a blue Christmas service this time of year. And those services are always very well attended. They're services for people who don't feel it's the most wonderful time of the year. I won't sing that song. <laughs> but who feel very sad and have nowhere to take that sadness because it appears that everyone else around them is having a holly jolly time and they're feeling sad. We need to make space for sadness in our church as a, a church and as a church as a whole. I checked with Barbara, who is Millie's walking partner, Millie Shepherd and her walk, as their exercise, I ran into her at a Servant Stage production, their Christmas show, which also was very happy. 
And Barbara told me about her life with her husband and how they traveled many places, had professional careers, and then in 2015, he died. She said, I felt so sad. I tried to do what everyone said. I prayed. I kept up in church. I read my Bible. She said, but finally, I just decided I'm going to be sad. And then she said, the Lord did something amazing. He gave me joy. Even the day I met her, she had a sweatshirt that said joy. She said, I gave up trying to be happy, and now I am joyful. I think that's what Anna was like. She stayed in the temple and worshipped. Now, this temple diagram isn't the best because it's a little skewed because it's all flat. The tabernacle was all flat. But the temple mount, by its very name, it's, it's a mount. So if you see 3D pictures, they're better. So imagine the court of the Gentiles, then you go up to the inner courts, up to the court of the women, and then up to the court of Israel. So notice what 38 says about Anna, and coming up. Tiny little detail, but she wasn't in the court of the women anymore. She said, I have something to say, and I'm going to say it and coming up. She was a prophetess, and she had a voice, and she used it. She may not have had children, or a husband, or wealth, or anything to speak of, but she had her voice, and she used it. I know of some women at Grace like that. They have voices, and they use them. Yes, we are a complementarian church, and yes, we have women with voices. We just finished a training time, teaching training for women. And I think I'm struck by the fact that Anna's voice was not based on her position or her rank in society because it was very low. It was because of her intimacy with Christ, that she had something to say, and she said it. And what did she say? The verse tells us, at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were awaiting the redemption of Israel. I mentioned Dr. Boyce's Christmas book. He says in his book, can I have the next slide, please? As the shepherds had earlier, she became a witness to all that she had seen and heard. That was the apex of her spiritual perception. She spoke of him. Do you? Are you a witness to Jesus Christ? You should be, if you know him. What Anna did was she took all the pain in her life, all the sadness in her life, all the difficult things, and she rolled them up into one ball of thankfulness and telling other people about Jesus' faithfulness. I have a friend named Terry, faithful pastor's wife. She was waiting for the bus in downtown Pittsburgh on Fifth Avenue. She had been raised in a Christian home, rather legalistic home, so she walked away from the faith in her teen years. She didn't want to have anything more of the rules of Christianity as she saw it. A woman came up to Terry and said, you know, God is not finished with you yet, and walked away. That one small line 
a few words changed Terry's life. She repented of how she'd been living, came back to the Lord, and has been a faithful witness to him ever since. It's awkward to tell people about Jesus. I was getting my hair cut in Strasbourg one time, and a lady was cutting my hair, and she asked me what I did, and I explained how we had just come back from Africa, where we were missionaries. She put down her scissors and looked at me and said, do people still do that? Like I was some relic from the 18th century. <laughs> yes, people still do that. People still enjoy Christ. And people still tell other people about him. In Africa and in Pennsylvania. Now if I am honest, as we come to the end of 2023, I am very happy to see it go. 2023 has been one of my most difficult years of all of the 60s. Our family has seen some very low points. There have been blessings along the way, but in many ways it's felt like a series of unfortunate events. So this sermon on the last day of the year is for you, and it is for me, as equally. What do I want 2024 to look like? I want it to be a year where I spend more time enjoying the Lord in prayer, in fasting, and Bible study, and fellowship with all y'all. <laughs> Are we Southern enough to say that? The spiritual disciplines are not things to do to become more Christian. They're things to do to see Christ. And I want more of him this year. And I want to tell more people about him this year. Is it awkward? Yeah. It's really awkward. But we got to do it. Awkward or not. Anna did. Simeon did. Got to tell someone and join the awkward club. In closing, I have to mention that as I studied the commentaries and read, our liberal friends and scholars note something about the first two chapters of Luke that we have to mention. They say, why are these two chapters look like they're almost an appendage that's been stapled on to Luke? They're very different in color, in tone, and language. They say they're too Jewish to be written by Luke. So, of course, we'll just toss them out. The conservative scholars dig a little deeper. And they say, what did Luke say at the very beginning? He said, I've checked the facts. I've checked with everyone. I've done interviews with people. I've talked to people to make sure I got the record straight, Theophilus. And who would he talk to except to Mary? Who would know these intimate details except the one who treasured them all in her heart? And as she's treasuring and as she's processing her pain, she like her mentor, Anna, out of her pain is bringing God's truth. And I imagine Luke writing it down, or maybe Mary writing it down, and just handing it to Luke and saying, here, Luke, you want the real story? This is what happened. I encourage all of us this year to take the pain, to take the troubles of our life, and seek God and tell others about him, as awkward as it might be, Let's pray.